0: We turn then in God's word tonight to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We have seen Moses in many ways so far in the book of Exodus as he becomes the one who is the provider, the one who is the mediator, the one who is the leader, all of which, as we have been saying, points us to Jesus Christ. This evening we see him as the one who is the law giver. Now, obviously by saying that, I'm not saying that Moses is the one who makes up the law. But as far as Israel's concerned, from Israel's perspective, yes, they know it's coming from the Lord, but Moses is the means by which that law comes. And so he is seen as the one who is the law giver, This evening, I invite you to keep it open tonight as well. Let's bow in prayer. Father, as the psalmist has told us, your word is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Father, as we look at your at your law again tonight, we just pray, Father, that you would enable us to see this with eyes that seek, with ears that hear, and with minds that understand. Father, we long be able to live as people that live out your law in front of a dying world. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So two points. Moses the lawgiver, Jesus Christ the lawgiver. There is indeed a kind of a a very remarkable comparison that we can make here between that which we find in Exodus chapter 20 and beyond And that which we find in Matthew chapter 5, which will be our New Testament passage that we'll be turning to in a few minutes. But let's let's spend a few moments here first thinking about and reflecting on what is taking place in Exodus chapter 20. First of all, there's, there's sort of a timing issue here. And the question is exactly when were these commandments given? I think if you, you put the account together, okay, it, as, as, you, as you read through the account, that the best way to understand when the verses that I just read were given would be to understand them to come after verse 21. That it's after the people are afraid, after The thunder after the flashes of lightning, after the sound of the trumpet, after the mountain smoking. And the people say, you go up, you go up. And then we read in 21 that the people stood far off while Moses drew to the thick darkness where God was. Then God speaks. This is what you are to say. So the first thing we want to note is that these laws are received on the mount. Now, not only are these laws given, but when we come to the story and the account in Exodus chapter 32, okay, of Moses coming down from the mount, finally, okay, and there the people are what? Worshipping the golden calf. What does Moses do? But in his anger, he takes the tablets that God has given, he throws them down in a fit of rage, breaks them, and then we have the whole account of what we do with the golden calf, but then God says, Moses, come up here again. And Moses again ascends the mount. There Moses receives again this law, written as we are told with the very finger of God in stone tablets. So where does this occur is indeed an important thing. God didn't dictate this to them while they were in Egypt. God didn't dictate this to them, to Moses, while they were at Merah, while they were at Elam, while they were in the desert, complaining while they were at Rephidim. He waits to communicate this until they are at the mountain. When they are at the mountain, when they are there as his covenant people, When God has fulfilled his promise, his promise to deliver, his promise to save, when that has been completed, then it's God comes and says. Now, there's an important understanding in that, is that God didn't come to them in Egypt and say, Now, people, listen. All right? I've talked to Moses, and Moses is now going to communicate to you. I spoke to him out of the burning bush. And Moses is now going to communicate to you the following. I am the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt. Shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you do all these things, if you keep these thing, these 10 things, I'm going to give you a year or so. And if you keep the 10, then I'll deliver you from your slavery. Then I'll bring you to a land of milk and honey. It wasn't that God gave these laws in order for the Israelites to earn their deliverance. God gave these laws too. After he had delivered them. After he had saved them. On the mountain. See, that's why we we need to underscore that. We We need to be reminded of that that this law's purpose was never to function as a salvation tool. God never gave the law as the means by which the Israelites could be saved. It was given to them as an expression of their gratitude and thankfulness for the deliverance God has given to them and how they were to live, how they were to live as his covenant people. Moses, the lawgiver, received that law on the mount. Secondly, the second thing to note is that Exodus 20, the verses I read, verses 1 through 17, are but the summary. They are not the whole. They're not the complete law that Moses received. It's not, You know, oftentimes the picture is here comes Moses down from the mountain, and here we have these these Ten Commandments printed on it. And yeah, it fits nicely. He's got one stone tablet here, one stone tablet here, and, and here it comes. But when you read the account, number one, it says there is writing on the front and the back. I, I haven't seen many pictures Of this that that actually depict that but that's actually what the Bible says but there's a whole lot more on here the Ten Commandments that which we read here are but the summary of God's law this is not the entirety of the law it's not like the only thing God set before him were these ten statements but these ten statements serve as the summary of the whole The third thing to note, then, is that there are various parts to this law. Typically, we divide the law into three parts. We talk about the moral law. Generally speaking, that, that refers to the summary. But there is also the ceremonial law. There is also the civil law that is given. And if you page through... Okay, all you you got to do is look, starting at chapter 20, verse 22. Now there's laws about altars. Then there's laws about slaves, how, how they're to treat their slaves. Keep going. At the end of chapter 21, there's laws about restitution. There's laws about social justice in chapter 22. Chapter 23 continues that. There is... The, the fact that not only when we get done there, but then there are laws that are given regarding the building of the tabernacle. There are laws that are given in the book of Exodus. All of which, okay, all of which is occurring up there on Sinai. All of which Moses is receiving. Moses is getting all of this. So the Ten Commandments are but a a summary of it. But yes, we'd say they're they're the the moral law. They're the the point and center. They're, They're sort of the heart of the law. But God expands well beyond that to include many and a variety of circumstances and situations. You get into the book of Leviticus and it It's remarkable how in-depth a skin rash can become in the camp of Israel. And the rules and requirements regarding skin rashes, the rules and requirements regarding sacrifice, all of which God has given to them. Plus, there's all the civil laws. What do we do in the case of murder? How do we handle that situation? What what are to be the determining factors? Is all killing murder or is there some killing that is not murder? How do we differentiate? God goes into detail explaining all of these things. And when you step back from it, you step back and you, you come to this understanding, this overwhelming understanding, Of the fact of, you can't keep this. Nobody could keep this perfectly. Nobody would ever be able to follow everything that this law includes. Whether we talk about the summary in terms of the moral law, whether we talk about the ceremonial law, whether we talk about the civil law, the the justice laws of the nation. It would be, it's virtually impossible for a sinful human being to keep that law. So God in his grace and mercy gives to them a priesthood, gives to them sacrifices, and says, here's your means of atonement. I've given you my law. It overwhelms you. you won't be able to keep it, you won't be able to do, but I'll provide for you. I'll provide for you the sacrifice. Make sure your sacrifices always meet for sure this one requirement, that they are without blemish, that they are clean, that they are spotless, that they are, in a sense, perfect. Always make sure that your sacrifice follows in that life. So now I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And let's read starting at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we're going to look at more here from Matthew chapter 5, but just note, first of all, the opening. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Everything that Jesus did, he did for a purpose. The fact that he goes to a mountain to give this address should not be simply glossed over by us. When we hear this referenced as, as we do as the Sermon on the Mount, It is the mount that ought to captivate us. That Jesus chose to deliver this from the mount. There's one of your similarities between what is going on here. Between Exodus 20 and Matthew chapter 5. That's a similarity. But there are some interesting and unique differences, aren't there? Think about that mountain there in Exodus chapter 20. Think about what that must have looked like as we read the description of it this morning and again this evening. Think of the reaction of the people to that which they're seeing and hearing and feeling. And now note this picture he went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him you see you see the picture it's much different than sinai isn't it with its holiness and majesty and awe fear. Here is the Lord God on a mountain. He was on a mountain in Exodus 20 as well, wasn't he? But here he is again. He's sitting on the mountain and people are able to come to him. Why the difference? Well, one is because this is the mediator himself. This is Christ knowing what his work was to be. This is Christ as the lawgiver coming and addressing his people. Not in the the same way that they were addressed at Sinai, but now they're addressed in a different way. They're addressed as His disciples, they're addressed as His people, they're addressed as those who have now come near. Now one of the questions commentators often ask when they're looking back at Exodus chapter 20 is is the question of... So in 19 God says when you hear the trumpet, you may come and approach. The question commentators ask is, what would have happened if the people had actually obeyed God? See, what happens is they disobey. What happens is they sin. They refuse to come up the mountain, even though God has invited them, even though God has said, Third day, you get to come. I'll sound the trumpet. Then you'll all know. See, and there's that picture of that trumpet sounding louder and louder. It's as if God is pleading with those people, come, come, I've invited you, come to the mountain. One wonders, does one not, what would have happened if the people would have come? How would God have spoken? How would God have addressed Well, that's a question we'll never know the answer to. But we do see a glimpse of it in Matthew chapter 5. We see what happens when they come to the one who is the Lord God of heaven and earth, sitting there on the mountain, dressing his disciples. But there is another similarity as well. And and it's kind of interesting how these passages flow together because Jesus also starts with a summary that he declares. That which we know as these beatitudes. Jesus coming to his disciples saying, because you are Christians, because you are my disciples, this is how you are to live. It's not that we live this way in order to gain some salvation. It's not that we live this way in order to gain grace. This is the way we live as a response to that which we have been given. It's the same thing as Sinai. Here is my law that I'm giving to you. As an expression of your gratitude. Here is Christ saying... Here is my will, here is my law that I'm giving to you as an expression of your gratitude for that which I am going to do. This is the way you'll live. This is the way my people live. So you have the summary. But then, okay, and I trust you know this, and and maybe if you have a, a Bible... Uh, where Jesus' words are in red letters, okay, it stands out a little clearer to you. But look at how long this actually goes. You, you have this summary statement, but then it goes on. All the rest of chapter 5, all the rest of chapter 6, all the rest of chapter 7, almost until the end, uh, not until you come to verse 28 does it change. Here is Jesus speaking from the mount. Far more than just those Beatitudes. It's that same thing as Sinai. Here is the Lord giving His law. It's far more than the Ten Commandments. Is it summarized in those commandments? Yes, but it's far more than that. And here is Christ there on the mountain giving them, first of all, these these distinct statements, these blessed ours, but then going on. To cover a whole variety of subjects, just as Exodus does, just as Leviticus does. How are you to live as my people? But in that expanded explanation, something is happening. We go from the movement, from from that which appeared to be an exterior obedience to an interior, to an internal. That Jesus is addressing not so much an external action as he is addressing a heart issue, a mind issue, a will issue. He's taking that which we hear on Sinai. He is taking that law and saying that law is not a law that is to be kept only externally. It is a law that is to be internal. So you have the law of adultery. And how does Jesus teach about this? That everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not just an outward action it is an internal sin and when you think about that when you when you really read Matthew 5 6 and 7 when you read how he speaks of the faith that's called for The only response is, Lord, where's our sacrifice? Where is our sacrifice? We can't keep this. We can't follow this. We can't do this. And just as Sinai leads to a sacrifice, so too does this Sermon on the Mount. It brings us to our knees. You know, we we had this in Thursday Bible study the other day with the rich young ruler, you know, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know, what are the commandments? And, you know, Jesus then says, you know, well, you shouldn't covet, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't kill, you know. And the guy says, all these I have kept. Jesus says, yeah, but one thing you're lacking, you need to go sell all that you have and give to to the poor. What was the man's problem? It was all external. There was no heart. See, when you really hear Christ speak in the New Testament, it's not an easing of the law. It's not a lessening of the requirement. It's not a backing off. Hey, I'm Jesus. I'm sitting on the mountain. I, you know, I've here to come to make life easy for you. I know it's a real, real hard thing to keep those Ten Commandments. Whew, man, and all that law of Moses. Boy, that, that's got to be tough on you people, trying to live by that. Well, I've come to make it easy. Here, listen. I would imagine there are probably countless people in churches who think that's what's going on in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But the reality is when you really read the chapters, when you hear what Jesus says, you hear what he says about how to treat others. When you hear what he says about judging. When you hear what he says about bearing good fruit. When you hear what he says about divorce. Come away from it going, it's pretty intense. It's pretty deep. This is actually harder than was Exodus chapter 20. This is harder than Leviticus. Because we're not just dealing with external actions. That, yes, of course, when we do them, are sin. But Jesus is saying you need to look internally as well. It all comes down to a certain sense to something Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in this section. Go to verse 17. Do not think. Those are probably good words for them. Those are good words for us too, right? Do not think. I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, let me give you two aspects of that. Let, let me give you two understandings of that fulfilled obedience. One, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill now generally, we, we jump on the bandwagon right away and go to, to Christ's obedience of it. And I'll get there in a minute. But there is also the aspect of to fulfill means to complete. To complete can also have the idea of adding to. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to complete the law. And and when you read that in the context of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you you get the understanding of what Jesus means. I'm not sweeping adultery away. (laughs) No, I'm completing it. I'm adding to that law by including lust not taking away from a marriage responsibility i'm adding to a marriage responsibility and and you can go throughout all the, the all of those chapters whether it's about oaths whether whether it's about bearing fruit jesus is coming back over and over and over again saying listen you have the law this is what it says but I mean, tell you, it means more than that. There is more involved than what you think is involved in these laws. So here comes Christ as the lawgiver, speaking from the mountain, giving a summary, and then expanding beyond it, and then saying, you see, I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it which only, in a sense, pulls us back further yet more and say, I can't do this. And then we get the other meaning of verse 17, don't we? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I will complete them. I will do this. I will be the one who will perfectly keep the law. I will do all that Moses commanded to be done. And I will command all. And I will fulfill all. That I am saying is a part of that law. I will do it all. See, as you and I think, okay, we we have to hear the words of Jesus. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come to fulfill the law. I know my mission. My mission is to do God's will here upon the earth. We tend to center so much, as well we should. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it's it's the neglect that often gets us in trouble. We center so much on the work of Christ on the cross that we forget about the work of Christ in fulfilling all of the law. That sacrifice on the cross would have meant nothing if it were a blemished offering. See, just as in the Old Testament, that insistence that God has that that animal you need to bring is is an animal that needs to be unblemished. Because God was picturing and pointing us to His Son. How is Christ unblemished? In that He kept perfectly the law. See, the law giver becomes the law keeper. The one who gives the law is the one who submits himself to the law. The one who declares the law from Sinai. The one who shakes the mountain. It's the one who comes and says, I fulfill that. That, too, you see, is, is to be a part of our, our, not only our theology, but our life. And he's come as the one who fulfills the law. And he fulfills it completely. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Righteous. What is Paul calling our attention to? The cross? No. He's calling our attention to the life of Jesus. To the life of Christ here. And he's saying, look, watch, see? Adam disobeyed God's law. Israel disobeyed God's law. You disobey God's law. You disobey God's law from Sinai. You disobey God's law from the mount. I am a sinner. I cannot keep that law. I can't keep Sinai. I can't keep the Sermon on the Mount. But One did. One did. And in that perfect obedience... Your and my righteousness is found. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Book of Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to pick it up at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Do you you get where that came from? Do you see what they're referencing? That's Sinai. That's where we were this morning. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. See where he just took us? He just took us to Sinai. He said, "But but that's not where I'm bringing you. I'm not bringing you back to Sinai. I'm bringing you to Mount Zion. I'm bringing you to another mountain. Another mountain that you're able to be brought to. Because of the mediator. Because of the work of Christ. What is he referencing here? He is referencing that perfect obedience of Christ. He is saying, you tremble in fear because of your sin. God says, come. Come. Come to me, all you who are fearful and heavy laden. Come, and I will give you rest. I'll give rest for your soul. I'll give rest to your guilt. Because in my Son, the one who is the mediator of a new covenant, He is able to bring you, not to Sinai, not to the mount where the sermon that He preached was at, but He's able to bring you to Zion, to Glory. To eternity. He's able to bring you into my presence. Say, how can I? How can I? Ever approach that presence of God? Because of the obedience of Christ. His His death on the cross justifies you. His death on the cross is the payment for all of your sin. But it is His obedience that covers you with His righteousness. That is our comfort. That is our hope. That is our peace. And God's people say, Amen. Father, as Moses went up on that mountain, He approached the thick darkness where you were. There in the midst of that darkness, you proclaim your law. Your Son proclaimed your law too from the mountain of Matthew chapter 5. But then He also approached the thick darkness. He entered in place where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He too entered the thick darkness in order that we might never have to approach you in your judgment. That we might always be able because of his obedience, to approach you, clothed in the righteousness, the obedience of Christ. The people marveled at the teaching of Jesus because he taught as one who had authority. (laughs) Yeah, they heard Sinai speak. They heard the voice of the Lord God. We've heard it too. Crying out in the midst of the darkness, it is finished. He obeyed even unto death. So that we might be forever cleansed. In His name, for His glory, we seek to live, to glorify and honor Him. And God's people say, Amen. Number